Welcome to ChangeBoard's Future Talent Podcast, our series of exclusive interviews with senior business leaders and thinkers to uncover their perspectives on the changing world of work. I'm Jim Carrick-Burtwell, co-founder and chief exec of ChangeBoard. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Alan Watkins, founder and CEO of leadership consultancy Complete Coherence. Recognized as an international expert in leadership and human performance, Alan has worked, consulted and lectured with businesses of all sizes and has coached many senior executives in the FTSE 100. Originally training as a physician and holding a degree in psychology and a PhD in immunology, Alan draws on a broad mix of academic and scientific abilities to underpin his work. In this podcast, I ask Alan about how his clients are responding to the rapid change being brought by digital transformation and why leaders are becoming aware of the importance of well-being in the workplace, as well as how he controls his own mental and emotional health. Alan, thanks for taking some time out to do a Future Talent podcast. Pleasure, Jim. Um, you're involved in our conference again this year, and the the the, the formal theme is uh, skills to thrive in the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, and we'll be aiming to explore what is this dig- digital revolution that we're sort of hurling ourselves into, if it's not already all around us. Um, and, and what impact is that having? Um, and you're involving, involved in coaching all sorts of people and working with leaders. Um, do you mind if I start by asking what sort of impact are you seeing amongst leaders that you're working with of the, the, the changes in technology, AI, digital in the world of work? Um, Fear and uncertainty, (laughs) to put it simply. A lot of them just are not sure what's happening uh, and how it's going to impact them. Um, And so they're not quite sure what they need to do about it. So a lot of them are sort of thinking uh, in this area, but uh, they just can't predict. This is a different world. Things are changing so fast. So just when they start to think they've got a handle on it, it's changing again. Um, so we have quite a lot of conversations with the CEOs and C-suites that we work with, uh, trying to help them feel their way into the future. Uh, so in their bricks-and-mortar business, um, what do they need to do in this completely new paradigm? Um, so partly managing their fear and partly helping them to think through some of the implications of AI of a completely disrupted world. And what are some of those implications of AI that are affecting them as individuals, as leaders? Well, I think there's an increasing acceptance that uh, a lot of jobs will disappear. Um, So depending on who you ask, some people will give you a figure of between 20 to 70% of all jobs will disappear. So if you're at the 70% of all jobs disappearing, then people are now talking about a living wage. You know, mm. there simply won't be enough jobs for the people that exist, so we'll have to just pay everybody to do nothing. So society may change, if we're at that end of the market, may change radically, and we'll have to rethink what it means to be working. Now, some people are scared by that. Oh, my goodness, I'm not going to have a job. Other people are saying, oh, fantastic, I wanted to retire anyway. <laughs> so there's a kind of massive range of responses. Um, What's your view on that? Where on that 20% to 70% of jobs disappearing as we currently know them? I think we're human beings are endlessly creative, so we'll create different things to do. So I'm probably in the middle ground somewhere. I mean, I think there's going to be a massive change. And one of the most interesting things is... Uh, we've kind of lived in a world uh, of the cult of the expert 
where um, our schools and, and our universities train people to know an awful lot about a very narrow field, AI will wipe that away. So, um, I mean, we're already seeing it in my own uh, uh, area, you know, trained as a physician, uh, where uh, AI doctors can diagnose better than your average GP. Mm. Uh, because it's algorithmic. Like how you come to a conclusion of what's wrong with this patient in front of you is basically an algorithm you've been trained uh, in your medical training to go through and come up with a diagnosis. AI can do that faster and more accurately and let make less mistakes than your average GP. So that's game over already. It's just not widely up you know, on the uptake yet. So those technical expertises, you know, whether it's a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, uh, a lot of that technical expertise will be absorbed by AI. So the thing that we'll be having to invent will be the bit in the gaps between jobs, uh, the ability to integrate multiple things. That's where the new jobs will be, and that's how we need to set up our kids and university students and on-the-job training to start to look very, very differently uh, at what we're delivering. So just to explore that in a little bit more detail, if we can kind of probe into those skills that, that are required um, in this changing world, um, and, and you just mentioned there a kind of a, a, an integrated skill set, a kind yeah. of a way, I guess, does that mean being more generalist than specialist? Uh, uh, neither, I think. Um, so the metaphor we often use is think of a, a comb to comb your hair. Um, an expert is one tooth of the comb and a generalist is the spine of the comb um, now society currently recognizes both experts and generalists and we kind of highly prize the experts so when there's a problem with the economy we go to an expert economist the professor of economics comes on and tells us why there's a problem when there's a health problem is we bring a consultant neurologist in another expert or a consultant surgeon in or whatever so we've had many years privileging the experts, and then we've got some gatekeepers, the generalists, who are the filtration mechanism down to the experts. So, but in the new world, we need a third type of person. We need people who are integrationists, if you like, a polymath who can do expertise and generalism, who can do both, who are not a single tooth of the comb, and they're not the spine of the comb, they're actually both. They may not have the depth of an individual expert, but they'll have enough to be able to comb your hair. So there's a third type of person emerging. I mean, frankly, they've always been there, but they've just not been recognized by society. So this sort of polymath integrator is what we're going to see more of and what we frankly need more of as the world becomes more complicated. And, and is that, in, in your opinion, a kind of core skill set that may well develop for leaders? It, it's absolutely uh, uh, what leaders need. And in fact, in a lot of our client base, um, the leaders who are beginning to succeed uh, or be more successful are those who are already leaning into that type of capability. Um, so they're realizing a sort of general managerial capability uh, is not enough. Uh, and a sort of technical expert, whether it's marketing or finance or operations, is not enough either. There's something else. There's something missing in this new complicated world. So the best leaders have already clocked that and they're beginning to have conversations with us about, well, what is that missing piece? And, and, and what are the leaders doing to, um, to develop those capabilities? I mean, is this something where the, the, that is, you mentioned fear 
Mm. Um, is this because they just simply don't know? There isn't a model of what good looks like. Or are there kind of paradigms that you can kind of teach or role models that people seem to be gravitating towards? Well, well there is a model. It's just not widespread. So there is an understanding of what's required. It's just that not many people know about it. So, you know, as I said, uh, polymath integrators, that the idea of that type of individual has been around, you know, I mean, Da Vinci is probably the most well-known polymath. It's who the Renaissance could, man. The Renaissance and man. woman. Exactly. Um, and so that idea has been around for a very long time. It's just that it's not widespread and there's not a deep understanding of the increasing importance of that type of human being in a modern organization. Modern organizations still largely operate on general managers and experts, uh, which is one of the reasons why most organizations are still struggling with their silos. Mm. Pretty much every business, and we work across about 90 different businesses, pretty much every business we see uh, is beginning to realize that the siloed nature of their business is holding them back. So as it's, the business is very siloed, but the world is very complicated, uh, and the world doesn't recognize these silos, businesses are struggling to deliver in a complex, unsiloed world when their own business is very siloed. So we've got to change the model. So people understand, some people understand how to change the model and what's required. It's just not widespread, that understanding. So the next phase is to get that understanding widespread and for people to sort of wake up to the realization that there's a third type Uh, beyond the generalist and beyond the specialist is we need these integrators mm. well we were we were talking before we started this podcast about a, a large multinational that you're you know working with and uh, if you're not able to talk about it we can edit this out afterwards um, but you were talking about having a kind of a, a almost a de-layered organizational structure yeah. um, so, so again in the um in the simple world, so back 30, 40 years ago, when things were relatively simple and straightforward, um, you know, command and control power hierarchies, the sort of triangle model of an organization where you had six to eight layers of management, uh, that worked. You know, there were lines of accountability. We all know who to shoot if something went wrong kind of stuff. Um, but in the complex world we're in now, it, it's failing. It, it's clearly failing. Um, and most people are recognizing that in most organizations. Uh, we've currently got a kind of halfway house in an ability to try and adapt that command and control system to a modern world. We Most organizations went for a matrix structure, which sort of added a whole layer of bureaucracy and complexity with hard lines and dotted lines of reporting. So I don't quite know who my boss is now. But uh, some of the clients we're talking to have begun to realize it, that is not going to work. Uh, and they're moving to a much simpler, much more fluid model, a three-layered model. Uh, and the three layers are really a leadership layer uh, for you know setting strategic frames and big picture thinking and guiding the overall direction, a frontline layer of, uh, of experts who are doing the work, and then the middle is an integrating layer, people who can connect with the leaders but also connect with the frontline who aren't constrained by geography or category of whatever they're selling, um, but they're uh, actually these sort of integrated polymaths who can do multiple. So that's the skill set that's going to be required. Um, and also, it makes for a much leaner system. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to create two things. It's going to create, uh, in the short term, a profound well-being resilience problem. 
Um, and it's also going to require much greater levels of development of the leaders and the integrating layer to be able to cope with this new world. Well, well, you, you touched on kind of, um, you know, people's and leaders' resilience. Um, well-being and mental health is going to be one of the, the, the other big themes within the conference. Mm. And we're approaching it very much as... Um, one of the skill sets that you need to nurture as a professional, as a leader, yeah. uh, and be proactive in that rather than just, you know, providing yeah. remedies. Yeah. Um, in your experience, how uh, how open are leaders to looking at their own well-being, their own mental health, and and those of the lar- the organisations at large that they're running in terms of putting in kind of proactive systems uh, to develop that resilience um much more open than they used to be um not least because the royal family is promoting the whole notion of uh, of well-being uh, and particularly mental uh, and of well-being and mental health although i'd like to just say it should be mental and emotional health not just mental because most of the problem is not to do with mentation or cognition or thinking uh, most of the problems that people are encountering, uh, encountering are emotional rather than mental. Can you give a couple examples of uh, that? Yeah, so if you're anxious, there's nothing wrong with your thinking. I mean, you might be thinking negative thoughts, but thinking as a phenomena still works. Uh, so mental illness is where the thinking process itself is disordered. Uh, so schizophrenia would be a classic example uh, where you have a you know, you, hallucination. You're, you think you're seeing something that's not actually there. That's a mental process uh, that's gone wrong. So that's mental illness, whereas anxiety is an emotional disturbance. So we really should get away from calling everything mental health and mental well-being. It's mental and emotional. So we have to have a slightly wider picture. But leaders generally uh, are waking up. So uh, you know, uh, Alistair Campbell is uh, speaking very openly about you know, his, uh, you know, problems in this area, as is Jeff McDonald. Uh, so people, not only the royal family, but a number of people are being increasingly vocal. And as a result, leaders are more prepared to talk about this stuff, um, which is a great thing. So that's the awareness of it is much higher than it used to be. Um, uh, and it's on the increase generally. And part of the reason uh, mental and emotional issues uh, uh, are on the increase is because the world's changing so quickly and people are struggling to cope. Mm. Now, I anticipate that's actually going to get worse before it gets better, not least because of the AI roboticization of the workforce and the loss of all these jobs. So people you know, will wonder even more about what's their role in the world uh, and how do they show up and you know, what are they going to do all day. So things may get worse. So it's natural uh, and right that we need to lean into this issue very heavily and get away. Uh, many organizations are still in the tick box, you know, oh, we've ticked the box, we've got a mental well-being <laughs> program, tick. Uh, we're not really solving it. Uh, and so the next phase is, what do we need to do? Great that we've raised awareness, but if you raise awareness without solving the problem, you're actually possibly making it worse. I'm now aware that I'm anxious or, or fearful or depressed, but I can't fix it. So we've really got to move the agenda once the awareness is there and it's much higher than it used to be onto, well, what is the solution for this? And what are those solutions? So going back to, we started this conversation talking about 
the the changes happening in the world of work the the digital revolution uh, is causing a lot of fear amongst mm. leaders um when you're working with leaders and they are anxious and they might be struggling with uh, the sheer volume of challenges that are coming at them um what do you recommend what are sort of coping mechanisms in those scenarios right i mean there's some fantastic news here is that um it's about skills not pills so pills are very useful if you've got a crisis to buffer you over the crisis but you can't take pills for the rest of your life even though many doctors and pharmaceutical companies might want you to uh, really uh, we need to train people to get much better able at controlling their emotional states and the good news is that's pretty easy to do if you know how to do that is we've got to empower people that they're not helpless victims in the face of the circumstances of life the changing nature of the world is that people can learn to control their emotional state again can you give me some examples of that sort of some people that you've maybe worked with that are that are um, feeling those kind of volatile emotional states what practically do you help them to to do to overcome that so the first step in in transforming anything is you've got to become aware so if you want to transform transform your factory in newcastle you've got to become aware of what's going on in the factory the same thing is true as if you want to transform yourself you've got to become aware of what's going on in in your own system so am i even aware of the difference between fear and anxiety so if I can't tell the difference, then I can't really solve the problem because I don't know, even know who the enemy is. So there's a, an awareness raising, you know, which emotional state am I actually in right now? Is it fear or is it anxiety? They're two different things. Uh, so that's the start point is an awareness of my emotion. You know, effectively, which planet am I on? Um, now, once I realize I'm on anxiety, not fear, then the solution to anxiety is the ability to get off that planet, as it were, to get out of that emotional state of anxiety into something that's more helpful. So um, learning to change your emotional state is really where the game is. Um, and the good news about that is we change our emotional states as human beings all the time, is we just don't do it under conscious control. So um, you can see that you know, if the sun suddenly comes out, we all feel a lot better. So that's a shift in our emotional state, but it's not happening deliberately. It's happening as a consequence of something outside of ourselves. So what you can do is teach people to deliberately change their emotional state. It requires a bit of practice, so you have to practice doing this to get really good at it. But when you get good at this emotional state shifting, you can start to show up in your life in any emotional state that you like, whatever's most appropriate for this circumstance. Uh, and that's what we teach people, is how do you, first of all, become aware of which emotion uh, you're currently experiencing, and how do you change to something more productive? So those are two really important skills to learn as a human being, for all human beings, not just business leaders, for myself, for anybody listening to this, which emotion am I in right now? And by the way, if you don't know which one you're in, you're lost. <laughs> and can, uh, you, can you think of um, any examples spring to mind of, of kind of paragons of this? So leaders, whether you've met them or worked with them or, or, or just aware of them, that are very aware of their kind of emotional state um, are aware of which planet they're on, as you put it. Yes. So um, you'll see that some of the best leaders, I mean, Obama comes to mind, first of all, he's very measured, he's very self-regulated. Um, so you kind of get the impression when you see him interviewed that he's almost aware of how he's coming across as he's coming across. 
So there's that sort of sense of mindfulness about him. Uh, so he would be a very, uh, you know, well-known example of, you know, really good quality self-regulation. So even when somebody's saying something outrageous to him, he doesn't seem to flap or panic or, you know, uh, he's often, you know, uh, very easygoing. Uh, he's got an easy humor and so on. Um, so uh, you see it in sports people who have to perform under intense pressure as opposed to choke and miss the shot uh, or, or uh, uh, you know, not get the medal. So sports people have to train themselves to do this. Um, so you can sometimes see the difference between a great sports person who chokes and a great sports, sports person who chokes less. So the ones who can perform under pressure have learned that ability. But it's, the good news, again, is it's possible for us all to be able to do that. Um, and also, it's legal. You know? <laughs> and in terms of in your, own, in your own kind of life, in terms of your own um, evolution and finding this kind of equilibrium, um, w- what do you do to kind of help yourself? Are there any sort of uh, personal things you can share um, when things happen in your life that you find really work for you? Uh, it's kind of like what I've been telling you is that the journey starts with the awareness of where am I? So I'll often sit and think, well, how do I feel right now? Uh, and I was sitting in the office the other day and I thought, well, actually, I feel quite buoyant. <laughs> I feel quite buoyant today. And then I started wondering, well, what is buoyant? What is that? Um, and so you can actually just write down what is buoyant, not as an intellectual concept, but what is buoyant as an experience. So you can write the features of buoyancy down on a piece of paper. And as you write them down, it's a pretty interesting, it's like a weird thing to do, but it's pretty interesting because when you write down what buoyant is as an experience, you can see that those features are different from another emotion uh, of excited. So, for example, uh, you know, buoyant might be a bobbly energy, whereas excited is a kind of uh, frothy energy. So they're different. You can describe them, the experience of those things in your own system differently. That's really helpful to make a distinction between one emotion and another. Uh, the reason people can't shift emotions is they don't know what they're shifting to. Mm. So they don't know what they're trying to experience. So the ability to write down the features of one emotion versus the features of another emotion is a very useful uh, skill to mm. develop. Um, so we can know what emotion we're in right now and we can know what emotion we're trying to move to because we've got it written down. It's like having a picture of what you're trying to achieve. So objectifying an emotion is an unbelievably useful uh, skill to develop. That's very interesting. I, I'm reading a book at the minute which I'm finding absolutely fascinating. It, it's called Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. Mm. Um, I'm sure it's in all sorts of bestseller lists. But But one of the things he talks about is um how absolutely critical REM sleep is mm. um amongst other things but because it, it's the, the the part of your sleep that helps you uh regulate your emotional balance and and develop your emotional intelligence and 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 put bluntly said if, if you don't get enough sleep you're nowhere near as good at those emotional interactions mm. um which i found really really interesting um there's some great stuff about sleep um i mean uh, so there's REM sleep, and then there's four stages of depth of sleep. You know, stage one, two, three, four. And the REM is the sort of gap between deep sleep, when you're unconscious effectively, and when you're awake. So it's the sort of grey zone between consciously awake and completely unconscious. 
uh, where we do do a lot of processing. So we all go through REM sleep. Uh, so a sleep cycle is about 90 minutes and it's topped and tailed by a bit of REM. Uh, now, a lot of people say, oh, I don't dream. Uh, I think you'll find you do dream, you just don't wake up during the dream. And if you don't wake up during the dream, you don't realize you've dreamt. So we go through those REM cycles every 90 minutes through the night. Uh, if you wake up during the REM cycle, you'll be aware that you've been dreaming. Uh, but we all go through it. But the really rejuvenating stuff is stage four, deep sleep. Uh, and the emotional processing may be happening during REM sleep, but the rejuvenating, in my, in my uh, view, is that deep stage four sleep. So this is why some people, and you see this in monks, who can train themselves to get into the rejuvenating deep stage four sleep in about 15 minutes as opposed to 45 minutes. Yeah. So you can exist on two hours a night if you can get into deep sleep really fast. Interesting. Well, I, we could talk and talk about sleep, but um, final question. Um, anything that you, you're reading in, at the minute that you'd particularly recommend? Or what sort of things do you generally read? I know you write. You must read if you write. What mm. sort of things interest you? Well, well, currently I'm reading Ken Wilber's book on Trump and the post-truth world, which is an unbelievably beautiful description of how we've got a crisis in leadership and why we've got lost. Um, and uh, in this sort of post-truth world where nobody believes anybody anymore and everything's fake news, what are we going to do? I mean, if the world wasn't difficult and complicated enough, uh, nobody believes anything, you know, uh, and we're all getting our news from social media and half of that's not even true. Um, so it's a really good uh, description of how do we get into this mess and more importantly, how do we get out of it uh, without imploding into depression and anxiety, fear, panic uh, and all of those negative states. Uh, what can we really do about it? So that's really provoking a lot of thoughts in me right now. Very good. Alan Watkins, thank you very much. Pleasure, Jim. Thank you for listening to this Future Talent podcast. There are many more available to download on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you another Future Talent podcast very soon.